Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 421 featuring Ben Proctor, who is the production designer of the Avatar sequels. Very exciting to have Ben back. Uh, as you guys may remember, he was on before as episode 277, if you want to check that out. And in that one, we talked more about his backstory and all that stuff. But this time, we decided just to jump into Avatar, which is really cool. He just got back from the Oscars, where he was nominated for uh, Best Achievement in Production Design for Avatar. So it was really cool to hear about that. But then we really actually got into Avatar quite a bit. Avatar The Way of Water, obviously. Uh, and it was really, really cool. So if you haven't seen a movie, there's going to be a whole lot of spoilers, so you may want to wait and see the movie before you do that. Uh, but otherwise, it's really, really exciting uh, to talk to Ben about all the things he did. We did an extensive amount about uh, the Sea Dragon, which is a big part of the movie, as you guys know, and sort of understanding all the bits that came together to make that happen. So really exciting to talk to him about it. He's been working on this for so long. It's absolutely unbelievable that uh, uh, to see all that work happen on the big screen, that to hear him actually be able to talk about it a little more openly. He can't talk too much about it because there's still three more movies or how many more movies coming out. So we uh, we had to hold off on some of that. But really exciting to see that. Uh, we also talked a lot about AI art. As you can imagine, this is a subject that's very hot. And I want to know from uh, someone on the production side of things, especially on the concept side of things and, and, and design, how that's going to affect them now, how it's affecting them now, how they think it's, he's thinking it's going to affect them in the future and just generally what does this all mean for everyone so uh very very interested to hear his thoughts on that and i'm sure a lot of you would be interested to hear that as well um, we have a couple of announcements. You can get all these at chaos.com. Our product announcements is V-Ray 6 uh, for 3DS. Uh, V-Ray 6 for 3DS Max Update 1 is out. Uh, many, many new features have been added. I'm not going to go through them. I've been talking to them for a couple times. But go check it out. Go to chaos.com. And of course, when the update ones for the other products, such as V-Ray for Maya, Houdini, etc., all come out, we will let you know on this podcast. And I will tell you all about them then. A uh, few events are going on right now. So let's see. Uh, uh, April 18th, uh, 14th through the 18th, we will be at NAB in Vegas. Uh, yes, I am unfortunately not going to go. I may decide at the last moment just to drive to Vegas and see how NAB is doing. Uh, but I'm not, I didn't have any specific plans to go. But we will be at the AMD booth, uh, and there's some cool stuff that we're going to be showcasing over there. So go make sure and check us out. Love to see you there. Again, it's April 14th through 18th at NAB. Uh, April 16th through the 21st, we will be at BAU 2023 in Munich, and we'd love to see you there. Uh, and April 24th through 26th, we will be at FMX in Stuttgart. I will not be able to go to FMX, but a lot of chaos people will be there. Uh, so go make sure and say hi. I think we have a booth and there's a bunch of things going on as well. So excited to see you at FMX if you will be there. And of course, you can get all this information at chaos.com slash events uh, to find out all the different events and places we're going to. Again, that is chaos.com slash events. Now, if you want to know more about the podcast, of course, you can just go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast, uh, or you can just go to our page, which is chaos.com slash CG Garage. And if you'd like to watch these podcasts, they're very popular now on YouTube to watch podcasts. It is youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. We upload all of our podcast videos there. And if you'd like this podcast or this episode and you'd like to suggest some more guests or you have some ideas or questions, 
always email us. Uh, labs at chaos.com is the best place to do that. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 421 with Ben Proctor. Welcome to another CG Garage where the Chaos Group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. So, Ben, tell me, yeah. how, how was the Oscars? <laughs> <laughs> the Oscars is a trip. It, it is a giant machine, uh, you know, of an apparatus, of an organization and everything else. It's, it's incredible what they, the show that they put on. You know, I mean, you, you end up in this this labyrinth of red fabric, basically, all these tent systems that they built to, to guide you into lines where you wait for one thing and then wait for another to get, get onto the red carpet or to get into another lane or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and there's all these, you know, much more famous than you people jockeying to try to not wait in line and things are moving and changing and people are cutting the line and all kinds of stuff is going on. <laughs> um, and you just lose track of where you are. And in fact, the whole time, pr- practically, you're sitting in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard, but it doesn't feel that way. You're in this just this Oscar maze, you know. Wow. And, uh, you, you meet, you know, you end up next to somebody online who ends up to being the head of, you know, some giant, you know, news network. And another person was the guy who produced, you know, Chinatown or whatever. And it's like, what? <laughs> so there's, there's, you know, it's, it's a royalty experience for sure. Um, yeah. And the show was, was really well done. I mean, I know the show sometimes has things go wrong and whatnot, but I think it was really well put together this year. And, um, you know, obviously the, the part of the ceremony where you're leading up to maybe having to talk to a billion people is so terrifying that you kind of like you go numb and, you know, you can't really enjoy that all that much, you know. Right. But then once you lose or don't win, which is a little <laughs> like losing. <laughs> it's um, just an honor to be nominated, Ben. It's just an honor. <laughs> it's totally, it totally is. And it totally still kind of feels like losing when you don't <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I kid and I don't kid. I mean, it does. It, 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 you know, it's a sinking feeling. And what's really funny is that they, they immediately, you know, they've moved you to special seats to be near the stage, right? And then they immediately oh. grab you. And, and like the moment you don't win, they want you out of there because they need to use that for the next category, right? So you wow. get almost grabbed by the collar and shoved down a, a ramp that I, I was joking as we were going down. It was like the trash chute, you know? <laughs> uh, and luckily that ramp leads straight to a bar. So, so then you can, oh, good. Meet, you can drink uh, your sorrows away. <laughs> exactly. Meet with the, uh, I mean, we ran into the Babylon team down there that we'd been sitting next to for, for a big part of the ceremony. Uh-huh. And we've got good shots of us all drinking together and then, you know, commiserating. Oh, wow. Uh, um, but, but basically look, I mean, in all seriousness, the, you know, the, 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 it isn't an honor to be nominated, obviously, you know, that that's sure. a real honor. I, I do think that there's a, there's a somewhat random factor to whoever ends up winning in a given category in a different year. Um, at least that's what I tell myself, uh, you know, and, and, but being, being among those five is, is a big deal, you know, and, 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 uh, and getting to meet the other teams is fun. Um, yeah. you know, it's not just, it's, it's many different events that lead up to the Oscar ceremony, right? We had a, we had a dinner where we got to meet the other nominees, which was really great at the Academy Museum. It was beautiful. The catering was awesome, but the food, I'm still thinking about the food. Yeah. <laughs> I, keep, I was going to find out who the caterer was. I forgot. Was but, it, uh, was it, was it Fanny's? I don't there's know. Rest, there's a restaurant inside the Academy Museum called Fanny's, and it's very okay. good food. Okay, maybe they yeah. did it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a panel uh, on the Saturday before the Oscars um, at the uh, 
Sherman Oaks Galleria, what formerly I want to call it the ArcLight, but of course it's the Regal Cinemas. Right. Um, you know, in one of the big venues there, uh, speaking in front of you know hundreds hundreds of people, main, mm -hmm. mainly students and um, you know just movie fans. It's open to the public. Yeah. Um, and and we did a panel uh, talking to Tom Walsh um, and and Jen Pascal, respectively, of the ADG and the Set Decorators uh, Society of America. Yeah. Um, you know, each of us having a chance to talk about our movies, talk about where we came from, like how we got into doing movie design yep. and to hear the other nominees, each with their own story and each with their own, you know, strategies and approaches to how they do their work. Um, it was awesome. It was great. I mean, how often do you get to have an experience like that? You know, and well, not many people do. And it's really wonderful that you had that, you know, that's a lot of a dream experience that I think is incredible. Do I, you know, when I remember, you know, first meeting you when you were working over at uh, PLF and you were doing stuff and you were kind of showing me stuff around and you were working hard and it was grudging work and everything. And can you, uh -huh. can you imagine if you saw that guy back then, like 20 years ago and tell him you're going to be <laughs> walking the red carpet for best production design, <laughs> you know, it's hard to believe it's hard to believe. And, and by the way, go, go back in time further and tell 12 year old me, you know, who was obsessed with the design and aliens, uh, you know, I'm obsessed with Blade Runner and whatever that like, yeah, oh, yeah. And you're going to do it working for Jim Cameron. Oh, and by the way, you we already have had a chance to work closely with Ridley Scott. And it's just what can I say? I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> yeah, no, those are what's wonderful and just shows that, you know, those things can happen, you know, and that's a kind of a wonderful thing. I think that must have been a resonating story at the at that event to hear people say that dreams can happen. You know, <laughs> it's very true. No, it's yeah. very true. Um, the other thing that I found is that graphic design seems to be a common gateway drug into into design of all kinds. Because oh, really? It, there was almost nobody that hadn't played a little bit with that, uh, you know, at some point in their young young career, and that was certainly myself included. You know, I, I, I thought I thought I wanted to be a graphic designer at one point. Uh -huh. uh, was studying that, and <clears throat> anyway, uh, yeah. But as I said at, at, on the panel, you know, the, the great thing about working on movies is is that you can basically. I got to the point, and I'm sure a lot of people do get to the point where you look down this corridor of, oh, wow, if I want to be an architect, I need to do all this training and all this sort of stuff, you know, the, the, the years and the money and this and that and the other to, to become an architect, the tests. Uh, but all fields of design are that way. If you want to be at the absolute top of it in a certain, you know, in a certain world of perception at the top of that, in, you know, amongst the very best people, you've got to go to Yale school for, you know, graphic design or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. you can become like an absolutely amazingly well-trained typographer, et cetera, da, da, da. Um, and, and I, I just got to the point where I could see these corridors and I kind of said, you know what, I don't want to do any of these things. Like, I don't want to go that far down any one of these disciplines because I kind of like them all. Um, and, and, uh, it turned out that movie design was the place where they don't tell you what you can't do. Nobody cares. You know, you right. can be as a, as a production designer, but even as an illustrator, as, as almost anybody, you can touch on all these different elements of design, whether it's furniture design or industrial design or graphic design or architecture or you know, freaking geology, right? I mean, we, we invent landscapes all the time. There's mm -hmm. things that nobody in an official D with a, you know, I'm sorry, design with a capital D uh, right. design field gets to do, you know, you get to do all of it. And, and, and it's great. And maybe you don't do it to the competence level of those people, but you get to create worlds in the course of doing it. So anyway, as far as like dream come true, I, for me, just getting to do this type of design in a lot of ways is a dream come true, you know? I, I couldn't, I agree with you to some extent. I do, I do have an, I have a master's in architecture. So, mm -hmm. uh, but I remember very specifically when I moved into the film area, right? And yeah. it didn't matter, you know, they suddenly said, oh, Chris, because I was doing buildings for the day after tomorrow. And they're like, you know how buildings should look correctly. 
Because yeah. I could realize they were designing buildings to just background buildings, and they all look weird. And I'm like, yeah, proportionally weird. There's something. Uh, like, let me. You know, you need this and that, and fixed it, right? Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I realized I made them look like regular buildings, but I also realized there was no consequences to my design. No, it's, <laughs> the, the building is not going to fall apart. You know, That's in right. fact, I'm designing it to fall apart because it's going to be ripped by a tornado. <laughs> nice. So. It was kind of wonderful to, to 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 have all the pleasures of the design and none of the responsibility. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's yeah. like cheating, but I mean, it, it is what yeah. it is. You know, it's its own medium, and and you get to dip into all these things. Yeah, absolutely. What's For funny sure. is work, working with, uh, you know, on the Disney park for Avatar. Um, you know, we, we ran into sort of real world parameters. Like everyone has their real, real world parameters and their legal exposure and everything else, right? I mean, yep. architects, as you say, need to make buildings that don't fall down or they're in deep trouble. Um, you know, with, with Disney Imagineering, there's so many elements of, of ergonomics of, of and human psychology of where you've got to protect the guests from themselves. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's no limit to the weird stuff that little kids or <laughs> random people will do to try to kill themselves in, in an environment, you know? Um, and, and uh, you know, so we think of that as, as this sort of, you know, kind of like just open, open-ended creative world that they work in and to a, to an extent it is but it, it like you know just like i've got to worry about like okay i can think of something but then i gotta end up budgeting it to, to produce the damn thing right right everybody gets their own parameters but in, in certain in terms of pure design absolutely it's it's fun to be able to dabble so you're working with the imagineering team on on doing well, some avatar at, stuff? at one point um uh well as it turns out i think i i, I haven't signed anything yet but right. I, I am going to work a little bit on something new for them um but dylan and i both worked on uh, uh you know the parks. I mean, Dylan more so than I because he did these beautiful master illustrations of, of the, the design. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he, he did that over a, you know, they, they build a lot of, of miniature uh, models in Imagineering, you know, like at, at progressively larger scales. And that becomes actually their kind of master design documentation, which is really okay. fascinating. They do things in a different, very artistic way. It's very That's cool. awesome. Um, and so when Dylan did those paintings, it was over you know, like either, either it was a photo or it was some sort of 3D scan. I don't know what how he got the material, but it had to match what they were developing in their miniature model and in their layout. Um, and But, of course, he made it look photoreal and amazing and put people in it and all that sort of thing. Um, but then, you know, as we became the production designers of the show, of the sequels, um, you know, we, we have this level of oversight over everything to do with design for Avatar, right? Whether it be games or publishing or, or parks. And so uh, we got to go look at, I mean, I worked with, with Dean Lewandowski, in our lab, um, you know, because he was doing like, like our, the, the Lightstorm Entertainment Lab became heavily involved in uh, the Disney Park stuff, particularly when it came to actually doing the layouts and the ride design for the Flight of Passage ride, right? Mm-hmm. Which is an incredible ride. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not I'm, I'm not even going to quote myself. You know, I'm told it's like considered kind of like the best state-of-the-art ride out there. It's just kind of the best one. And, wow. and Richie Bainham and his team of you know, people who ultimately, who were sequence supervisors on an animation, you know, kind of a scene assembly level <clears throat> on Avatar 1, who, of course, have done so on the sequels. But at that point in time, they were they were being uh, layout artists and animators for this cool ride. Um, and they just knocked it out of the park. It's fantastic. And, and anyway, but Dean and I got to work on the queue experience, right? Because you wait a long time to get on that ride. Mm-hmm. And uh, it takes you through a number of different environments more like a Navi cave environment with cool, like, you know, proto historic type paintings or whatever. Um, but there's also high tech environments. And so he and I got to lay that out and then I got to weigh in and, and help design some elements for it. And this, that, and the other, we got to go down and see the park under construction, which was super cool. You would freak out as an architect <laughs> to, to, to see the engineering of how those floating mountains that aren't really floating mountains are held up by the, 
what looked like draped vines. Um, yeah. You saw the raw steel diagramming for that. It is, it is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Yeah. That sounds incredible. That sounds absolutely incredible. I just went totally off topic. Sorry, but no, well, that's not off topic. That's totally off. Topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Listen, this is incredible. I mean, obviously the last time, um, the last time we spoke, which was about 18 months ago okay. uh, that you were on, uh, you couldn't tell us much about what was going on in Avatar. But That's now, right. <laughs> now I think most of the world has seen the movie. Uh, I've seen true. it a couple of times uh, in, in on IMAX 3D. I went all out, all out. <laughs> nice. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it has to be some of the, the, one of the best cinematic experiences I have ever experienced. And I'm, I don't say that lightly. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was absolutely incredible. And I was completely blown away. I was really transported to the world, uh, especially uh, on the, that level of screening. Um, and it was such a well-told story and it, everything complemented each other really well. So well, tell us a little bit about the process of what it was like now that you can give it a little bit more visual context to sure, what you sure. were doing and what people were doing. Sure. So I'll start by, by reminding everybody that we've been designing four movies, right? It originally was going to be three, but then the script for, for Avatar 2 was so rich and had so many elements to it, they split it into becoming Avatar 2 and 3, and then we spawned like, oh, crap, now we have an Avatar 5. So we have four movies in development. We have shot out... Um, in the sense of live action photography and also performance capture, we've shot out, we're going to do pickups, but like mainly shot out, um, two and three. So okay. we, we literally have already filmed, I mean, we, you know, we're actively working on post-production elements of three, like Jim's virtual camera right mm -hmm. now. So there's, a, it's like, a, it's a much bigger picture. Um, and, and I, I still have to, you know, you, you're saying like, oh, now you can kind of spill the beans or whatever. I still have to differentiate <laughs> what I can say versus two versus three or four or five. <laughs> there's a right. lot more, a lot more secret stuff out there, but there's plenty to talk about, uh, about two. And, um, you know, I mean, gosh, where the hell do I even start? I mean, we, you know, as, as in our department, we started as just a handful of people in 2013. Yeah. Right? I went to visit you at Lightstorm. Yeah. <laughs> and it was all uh, these walls covered in black drapery. So I couldn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. No, it was, it was, it was like a skunk works for years and years and years. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, at this point, I, I'm pretty sure that, that my son and Dylan's sons are pretty much the only humans on earth that are not part of the production or not part of the art department who are allowed to even go to the second floor at Lightstorm and see all that stuff. Right. Like my mom, my wife, nope, go away. <laughs> they will never see that. Wow. So super secret. Um, but uh, in any case, you know, started doing conceptual design across all the different movies, right? That was, mm -hmm. that was the cool part, right? It's because Jim had his writer's team um, downstairs and he was running it kind of like a TV type situation, right? He had written this, this tome of 1500 pages of notes of story ideas and character ideas and world ideas and biology ideas and all the, you know, the kind of genius visionary crap that he goes off and does on his own. Mm -hmm. um, and, but then he was really trying to break the story um, with, with this writing team. And, and when we started off, there was no, you know, they were working on it, but there was, it was early days, man. It was really early days. So there was this cool moment of back and forth with them where they would come up and see what we were doing. Um, we didn't generally go down to the writer's room very often. It looked, it looked like a, you know, I, maybe it looks like any writer's room, truthfully, I wouldn't even know, but it, it looked like a, one of these, you know, kind of a glorious mind kind of mad madman things with just like every surface of every wall was a whiteboard and everything had little madman scribbles of ideas <laughs> on it. Um, right. But they would come up and see what we were doing. And, uh, 
it was really helpful for them. I mean, I did forget, forget putting Jim aside, right? It was helpful for the writers to see, particularly with the characters. You know, Joe Pepe is a great character designer who started at the same time, actually about a week or two before Dylan and I did. Mm -hmm. First thing, early days. Pardon me. Um, and he was designing, like, Kiri, right? The Sigourney's character is this, this older actress playing a teenager, right? It's kind of hard for anybody to wrap their head around. There's people who've seen the damn movie who still don't know what they're looking at, right? There right. are people who walked up to her at events leading up to the Oscars and asked her why she took such a small role. Because to them, she was the little photographic lady on the monitors in a couple of scenes, you know? Right. It's like, <laughs> how did you... Anyway, so it was It took me a while before I realized it was her, honestly yeah. speaking. And I'm a... Yeah, I can, you know... But they did... She, well, first of all, she's a fantastic actress, so that Absolutely. helps. <laughs> but Absolutely. just the way she's designed and, she, and acted... and. The, they must have altered her voice in they some didn't. way. They didn't. They didn't. We, we, there, there was talk of pitching up her voice the entire time. Right? You'd have to pitch up her voice, right? She's sure. got this, this resonant voice. I don't think they did. I, wow. I think that she ultimately found some way to play the character where she had both, you know, a kind of uh, a, an innocence and a girlishness about her, and then also this kind of maturity, like that there was a there was yeah. something in her that was a little more deep special <laughs> and somehow like Sigourney's voice modulations just conveyed that, and they didn't they didn't change it at all. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, she did a fantastic job. So congratulations. But but job. she must have been inspired by some of that concept, though, right? Well, I mean, she ultimately, of course, yeah, she got to see that stuff. But anyway, the writers have specifically said, like, when we saw Carrie for the first time, she clicked as a character. Like, we suddenly understood ah, right. what Jim was thinking, what Jim had in his head. Right. Um, and that was Joe Pepe's illustration. I know the specific one. Um, mm. And uh, so... You know, but that that same sort of back and forth or inspiring them happened with other other elements, environmental elements or creatures. I mean, obviously the, the Tolkun was a huge thing, right, for them to to wrap their heads around the idea of these animals or these creatures as being characters mm -hmm. um, and having different ages and different backgrounds and, and Pyakon in particular. What's what specific type of, of personality is he? Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, so. So we were getting into all that stuff. Um, there were some cool moments early on, which is the ultimate sort of concept design dream, which is where you do a painting. Um, Jim was like, that's great. And he either says that's going in the movie to your face. And, and usually he means it, uh, mm -hmm. or, or he, you don't know whether he likes something or not. And then you go and you finally read the script and, and you, you can tell from the description, you know, that it's, he's literally looking at, at a painting that the art department has done and describing it like right. da -da -da, almost like on the top left, there's da -da -da. <laughs> it's very specific. And so you're like, that's a great, you know, moment of a victory right. for, for design of saying like, wow, we, you know, we, we did something that was sufficiently inspiring for Jim that he wrote it in. So that was cool. Um, but anyway, so of course, you know, the, the, the bandwidth uh, required to kind of hit the, the, you know, as the stories were evolving, getting more more concrete as the elements that Jim wanted, um, he was getting more specific about that. Uh, he would get like on the hard surface side, I should stop and explain for anyone who doesn't know. Um, we have two production designers on Avatar sequels. Um, yep. There were two on Avatar 1, um, and the idea on Avatar 1 was a little more divided between virtual and live action, right? Okay. So we had Rob Stromberg as a kind of visual effects-oriented designer, Matt Painter, you know, very, very keyed into the, the digital rendition of things, and Rick Carter, great traditional, um, legendary traditional uh, production designer, who would be focused more on the human world, which which was represented more in terms of sets, right? Mm -hmm. Um because the scale of everything is is so much bigger across the board with the sequels, including in the human world, and the, you know, anyway, just it's just plain bigger. The layouts are bigger. Everything is bigger. Um, also, you know, the far more opportunities for blue people to be in human sets in these movies as opposed to in the first one where it almost never happened, right? Sure. 
Um, so so that, that virtual live action breakdown doesn't work as well anymore. So what we think of it as Dylan is the Pandora guy and I'm the Earth guy. It's just, a, it's, it's more of a cultural divide between the, the types of design elements that we're working on. So he right. does everything from the way the planet looks from orbit down to, you know, tiny little creatures and everything in between the Navi architecture, their, their, their cultural artifacts, all those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and then I work on the human tech, which is, you know, it's architecture, it's vehicles, it's all that sort of stuff. Spaceships, um, boats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, I yeah. mean, the joke is that he makes the pretty stuff and I, I make the equipment that burns and shits on the pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the people. villain. You're the villain I'm in the this. Villain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the villain. I've been saying for years that, that, uh, cause, cause you have to, you know, I'm sure that I haven't spoken to an actor about this, but, uh, we even had a, a video interview thing that involved Stephen Lang who plays our villain. And right. I almost got it out there, and I, it just didn't quite fit into the interview format. But uh, you know, I, I think of myself as the guy playing the bad guy, you know. And and the RDA is, um, you know, you, there's a sort of I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a, there's a sort of less passionate, more gray, more backgroundy kind of way to represent, or, or or either that or more arch, like just straight up villainous way to represent um, the RDA. But but for those of us working on it. We really got ourselves, you know, twisted into the mindset of trying to imagine how does the RDA see itself, right? I mean, every, every right. no matter what totalitarian society you pick or, or terrible dictator or whatever it is, not one of them saw themselves as the bad guy, right? And every single one of them had some line of propaganda or some um, just some framing of, of what they were doing in their own minds that, that justified it, right? Made it the righteous thing to do. Um, right. In the case of the RDA, they think they're saving Earth. I mean, it's in it's in the dialogue. Um, I know that that. Uh, uh, Edie's dialogue got cut down a tiny bit uh, in in the in the editing process, where she's explaining to Corich when he's getting his tour of the three D printing factory and the construction sites and all that stuff, which is of course exposition for how serious the RDA is this time around. Right. Um, I think she mentions like this: it's a whole new mission, Colonel. This is you know we're we're not running a mine. It's it's this is a, we're building a new home for humanity, right? Right. So. Um, you know, long before that was a line that existed, we had that in our minds as our, our, our ethos of, of the RDA thinks they're they're saving humanity. Earth is, is literally falling apart. Right. And um, and this is this is the last chance. So so, they're, you know, the, they're, the disregard they have for the planet or the disregard, the insensitivity toward the, the natives, all that sort of thing. Um, a, it's typical of history and typical of colonialism. Right. But sure. B it actually almost makes sense in their own mindset, right? It's like, it's like, you guys just stay away. We just want a little piece of, you know, we want to take a few resources from here, a few resources from there, leave us alone. And, um, and we can all get along. Fuck off, you know? Right. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, anyway, so, so I think just getting into that, you know, that mindset is what allowed us to try to find fun in the designs, right? Cause in, in my mind, you know, great, great concrete structures is only fun for, for so much. It's awesome, but it, it's also, you know, where, where do we find that kind of renewed energy? Because this is the art. This is what I call RDA 2.0, what we're seeing in, in Avatar 2, right? right? This is like we're coming back with more money, um, more intention to to colonize the planet and take over um, with no intention of making the same mistakes as last time, getting our asses kicked um, and surprised by Awa, right? I mean, mm -hmm. built a giant kill zone around around Bridgehead, the city, because they know that the real threat really isn't the Navi. It's the, it's the animals of the world that can be controlled by by AWA. So it, it, there's a lot of bodies out there that could be thrown against your wall. You build a, you know, two mile deep kill zone with a lot of, a lot of weaponry pointing into it. Right. And that should hopefully protect you. So there was all this thinking about how they're, they're, you know, kind of rearmed and with newer, better technology, 
um, you know, we sort of looked at that in, in terms of all the vehicle designs. You know, how do we, if, if the, if Avatar 1 was primarily a sort of Vietnam War uh, metaphor, right? The whole thing was kind of, you know, guys in Hueys over Nam throwing napalm on, on, on innocent people, right? Right. Um, you know, I sort of, I'm sure there's a lot of different ways to interpret Nam, but that particular interpretation, right? Sure. Um, and, uh, and the insensitivity to the locals and the kind of the, sort of, frankly, the racism, you know, I mean, the, 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 the Earth people in Avatar are basically really racist against the Navi. I mean, you know, it, it even uses the the word racial in in Avatar One, right? When he's right. given when Korich is given a a speech, he says we're going to blast a hole in their racial memory so deep they'll never come back to here, you know, in a ten thousand years or whatever it is. Right. I, you know, Jim's a smart guy. He used he put that word in for a reason. <laughs> sure. You know, and uh, so where the hell is that going with this? Um, all right. So yeah. So RDA two point You know, looking at the vehicle designs, if that was a Vietnam War. Uh, metaphor, right? And and the, the Samson, as beautiful as it is, is kind of a version of a Huey, right? It has a sort of some round roundness to it um, in, in its shape language. It's sort of, overall, it's it's a futuristic Huey in some sense. Um, Jim literally said to me, like, okay, the, the, the Kestrel, which is our new larger, you know, kind of gunship with, with door gunners and the ability to carry people. Um, he's like, if the, well, if the, if the Samson was a Huey, this is a Blackhawk. It's just like, the, it's a bigger one, and it's the next generation of technology. Um, I would I would say we didn't make it look like a Blackhawk because a Blackhawk also has nice teardroppy soft shapes, which is just not mean enough and cool enough, you know. Right. Uh, so we wanted our, our new vehicles to feel like they were state of the art in some way, right? And 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 reminded us essentially more of our military technology today as opposed to in the 1960s. Sure. Um, so we looked at stealth aircraft, right? You look at, at all, you know, F-35, F-22, um, you know, the kind of like the, the signature you know, ang angle on the edge of the plane that all these things have. We leaned into things like that that were motifs from more contemporary uh, aircraft. And then we looked at animals, you know, I mean, one, one of the things that uh, is cool when we look at the design sort of techniques and languages between my side and Dylan's side um, is, uh, is that, you know, we both refer to nature um, actually a fair amount. And in some cases, Dylan has to refer to real world architecture and real engineering when he's dealing with his stuff, right? Um, the, you know, he was looking at actual, I can't remember the name of the architect, but I, I want to say uh, one of the Montreal expos, what would that be? 1974? Calatrava? No. no. He's a guy, I want to say it's a German name. Anyway, I'm sorry to, to not be able to name the architect, but that's the story okay. of my life. Um, anyway, did these amazing um, steel, uh, like can canopy tensile structures at, at, right. at a World Expo. And, and Jim referred to that for Dylan to look at, at the shapes you get when the tensile engineering is is such a key part of the design process, yes. right? And that that was helpful to Dylan. On my side, you know, we look at animals for reference just to give personality to things, right? So the the kestrel has like a hornet face on it. It's got like these big bulges in the canopy that mm -hmm. give it kind of a mean hornet face. Um, and the sea dragon, well, uh, the obvious one is the crab suit, right? Crab suit right. literally looks like a crab, which uh, it took us a lot of time dancing around the design of that thing. Uh, not a lot of time, but we, you know, our, our first instincts with that were more anthropomorphic. We thought underwater amp suit, right? What does that look like? Is it related to, we knew it wanted to have more limbs, but you know, there's a lot of centaur like kind of combo anatomies that you can do. And uh, anyway, Jim eventually was like, guys, it's a crab suit. I think we should make it look like a crab. Like, Go get a crab from the store, bring it in the kitchen. We're going to look at it. Okay. And uh, we did that and, you know, and, 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 there was so much real bio biomimicry that we could do with the design once we just locked into, you know what, we're just going to look at nature and imitate what crabs do. 
Right. Um, and then the sea dragon looks like a manta ray mixed with a whale shark in a certain way, right? It's got like yep. a mouth on the front, so wide aspect ratio mouth, all that stuff. So, um, so anyway, it's cool to to cross the streams. And I, I guess you know the other way we differentiated this this time around compared to the first movie was was the use of color, right? I mean, I, I knew that we'd be going to the ocean, so you already got this this beautiful kind of backdrop of of different ocean colors that you're playing against, right? Um, I knew that the the reef would be full of amazingly brilliantly colored, you know, patterned creatures, and uh, that those would be the our, our enemies that the RDA is fighting. Um, and I just number one wanted the RDA stuff to sort of stand up against that and have some punch and some fun. Um, so we put color on for that reason, for just for visibility. I and mean, the other thing is, once you start looking at real world maritime stuff, especially workships or oil platforms or whatever that is, um, they use color all day long. They are not afraid to use color like crazy color. Um, so the, you know, like walls of color and, and, and it, once you start doing that research, it's really fun, you know, and, and, uh, um, obviously Chris, Chris Foss noticed that a long time ago, you know, a great sci-fi illustrator and leaned into the use of color and in industrial stuff with his designs. So it was sort of like a, with a little bit of Chris Foss in the back of my mind, you know, let's do something a little different. Let's embrace color. And then looking at the real world stuff and even the safety equipment that the people wear in these offshore environments, it's so cool looking and it involves so much poppy color. Um, and so, you know, we took some early cracks at, at costuming for the sailors um, that ultimately Deb Scott, our, our great production designer, came along and, and interpreted it into better versions of those things. But the DNA of having that like really bright, you know, high vis safety vests and, and, and water, you know, water safety gear built into them um, was something we looked at early on. And so um, so I guess you could say that like water was one of the big things that inspired us to be more colorful, you know, and uh yeah, that's awesome. Sea Dragon. Sorry, just through one little sure. Even on the Sea Dragon, you know, which is a gray ship, right? Ended up being kind of slightly more silvery than I than I even intended in the renders, which is that's a whole other topic. But <laughs> anyway, it looks fine. It looks good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, anyway, but but on the inside, toward the front, when when it does this crazy sort of transformer thing of its face opening, right? Right. Um, I wanted it to really look like like you know, as as much as that's a monstrous kind of disfiguring hopefully almost disturbing thing is you just don't expect it to happen. Um, I wanted to feel like an animal opening its mouth to feed. Right. So, so right. That we, we knew that there was a lot of story that we were going to tell on that foredeck uh, out there, like a lot of story. We'd be looking back toward the ship a lot at framing characters against this big facade and it could have been gray. Right. But I was like, ah, eh, it's going to be boring. Let's just go crazy and make it red. Let's just make the walls in that area red. Um, all the superstructure stuff that you see and it'll simultaneously just be more interesting for all these shots that we know are coming. Um, and it'll, it'll also feel like you're looking into the mouth or the guts of a creature, you know? And right. um, anyway, hopefully that worked. Hopefully uh, unconsciously people picked up on stuff like that. Well, I was actually going to talk, I wanted to talk more about the sea dragon because I thought it was a kind of a really, really interesting thing. And I did pick up on all of its openingness and stuff. And it was really yeah. kind of cool that way. But that ends up being one of the most complex sets mm-hmm. things I have ever seen. And I was thinking about that because in the most Cameron way possible, <laughs> he takes this incredible thing and slowly, literally turns it on its head yeah, upside yeah, yeah. down underwater. And the thinking about, because you must have designed how all of it 
inside worked, right? It was not random. Like you could no. tell they were specifically navigating through rooms, et cetera. And you had to think about how it's going to play up, you know, upside Absolutely. right and upside down underwater. Like, how was that? I mean, that must have been taken forever. <laughs> it was so hard. It was so hard. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, we, we've taken, we, we've had a blessing of time and resources on, on these movies that nobody ever gets. Right. So I, I'm not complaining by any means, but sure. yeah, it was really, really hard. Like multiple people lost a lot of hair to that thing. Right. Uh, you know, it's sort of, I, I guess it's one of those things that, that it, it, looking back on it, there's so many interdependencies and details that we had to figure out over time that it almost makes me like my mind go numb. Like it's just, it's just crazy. The number of different, different bits, but it, in reality, Pardon me. In reality, you know, it was it was done in, in this sequence over time. Right. Sure. So so essentially it's like bit by bit. You just sort of you sort of the puzzle sort of would, would reveal new layers of itself. And you you'd then attack that. And then you realize, oh, crap, there's a knock on effect of this decision that, that will affect these other scenes. You know, do we want to reconcile that? Do we not want to reconcile that? There were definitely some cheats that we did uh, here and there, particularly once it's upside down. Um, but, but basically, I mean, you know, it started, I'll just talk about the process. It started off just trying to figure out what the hell the thing was, right? We knew Jim right. wanted to do a wing and ground effect, uh, vehicle, right? So him, he being a, you know, a, a, a geek, um, mm -hmm. came, came, brought, brought that to the table right up front, right? So he's like this thing, it's called the sea dragon. It's big. It's much bigger than the dragon from avatar one. It's got to do these sorts of things. And it's a wing and ground effect aircraft, right? So like, that's cool. Right. So we started to think about. Um, you know, look, look at real wing ground effect aircraft, look at how they work. Um, some of them are, are you know, un unbelievably cool when you see them in action, right? The Akronoplan, you know, from, from uh, the Soviet Union in the 80s, you know, when you see those guys hauling ass over the Caspian Sea, kicking up like, you know, Firefox, uh, you know, rooster tails of water without even touching the water. It's yeah. so cool, right? But the looks of them, you know, are so, are so aircrafty. They're effectively stub winged 747s in terms of their overall layout right so right. knowing that we needed decks knowing that this thing was a mothership that had to provide you know refueling and 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 you know uh re recovery and everything else for all these different different types of sub vehicles um and, and i say sub i mean you know whatever child vehicles but right include subs <laughs> um you know those kinds of a lot of the acronoplan that are out there in the world whether they be a cargo plane or or the acronoplan or whatever it is uh the, the soviet ones just the wrong shape right so we knew we had to go somewhere a little bit different um, there were some much smaller ones in the real world that were more inspiring that had started to lean into slightly more manta ray-like kind of proportion to the wing instead of like this sort of little stubby stuff. Um, so that was cool. And the other thing we wanted to do right away, because we're all geeks uh, for illustration, was, you know, Berkey did those amazing um, hydrofoils, right? Military hydrofoils. You know, I'm, I'm not even sure when he did those, probably early 80s, maybe late 70s, something like that. But there are these iconic illustrations where these like monofoil things are just hauling ass across the ocean, putting up the craziest rooster tail of water that you've ever seen. It's like this orgy of water effect. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, we were all like, we got to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know how we're going to do this. So anyway, so, so we almost immediately started pitching Jim stuff that was a hybrid of some kind between wing and ground effect and hydrofoil. So, so that the first images we showed him, it was always like in mid, in mid takeoff with the giant water kicking up. Cause it's just too cool. Right. It's right. inherently violent to the world that you're just like ripping through the sea and throwing up water and all that stuff. Um, and he bought it. I mean, David Levy did this incredible illustration uh, nice. that I think is in the art book with that has a sort of sunset dusky sort of background to it. 
And um, it doesn't really look like the Sea Dragon. It's a bizarre looking, really sci-fi thing. It's beautiful. Um, but it sold Jim on the idea of this hydrofoil. He was like, he's like, okay. He's like, well, I guess it's a hydrofoil now. <laughs> also, right. you know, so, so the hydrofoil was our transition mode. Um, you know, in theory, the thing can drive around in hydrofoil mode indefinitely. Right. And, and sure. we may or may not see that in, in the next film, but, right. uh, but it, it, in, in Avatar 2, it, it was a transition sort of deal. So anyway, right. so that's just the basics of like, like, okay, we got to give it a shape. It has to look cool. It's got to have the, imply the right functionality as a vehicle, be the right size. What's the overall size we're going to figure out. Um, and then it had this, you know, we, we had enough story beats coming along that uh, we knew, okay, kids are going to have to get tied up somewhere. There needs to be sight lines between this point and that point. A character is going to come rescue them. That character has to be able to get on the damn ship, right? Um, and we were, we were getting cheeky and having these like, you know, sea world type deals where the, the guy would use like his Elu leaping out of the water and he would leap off the Elu to be able to get really high up onto this, onto this, this craft to, to rescue his siblings. And, uh, that stuff could have worked, but, uh, but at some point, Jim, this is what, this is what triggered the idea of the whole front of the thing opened. Jim's like, guys, I need more deck. I just, I need a deck. I need a stage in my story. Right. So, um, so he on the fly invented the idea. He's like, why don't we just clamshell open the, the front? And, and, you know, that's one of those things where it takes a, a beat for your, your pitiful mortal brain to, like, wrap or, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> just have it open like that. Just like clamshell. Just, the fuselage is just going to open in two pieces. And we're like, oh, God. Like, I'm, I'm you, you know, every, every piece of aluminum framing of the thing that I've had in my mind is, is literally getting ripped and shrieking as Jim. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a great idea. It was a wonderful yeah. idea. And, uh. You know, I mean, Jim is, is great at doing these, uh, coming up with these, off, what's seemingly off the cuff design solutions that are just really good. You know, yeah. I mean, even the, the idea of the, of the Mako subs dropping into the water um, as part of how they launched, you know, we had this whole, this, this system of ramps and stuff that would go off the bow and it all would have worked. And we thought that the moon pool was a place for them to, uh, to be recovered, you know, and, and we knew we needed a moon pool for story reasons. Um, actually, did we know that? We might have invented the story reasons later to use the, the moon pool. Okay. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of back and forth that way. I mean, the geography, <coughs> as you pointed out, the geography of that damn ship is so complex and so specifically used in the yeah. story, right? That uh, that a lot of those things were, some of them were planned and some of them were opportunistic. Jim saw an opportunity and said, oh, yeah, no, no, we can just have them do blah, blah, blah. The kids, like, how do we get the kids off the ship? No, they don't have to run all the way to the front. They, they can just jump in the moon pool. Great, right. done. And you, you, you know, with each of those little decisions, it's like, oh, grab onto that. You know, like right. we're going to run with that and 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 push it forward. Um, but uh, what the hell was I saying? Oh God, just overall design of the ship. So anyway, so so Jim invents this idea of the front opening. Now we've got this deck uh, with all this opportunity. We knew we needed some things out there. You can't just have it be a, a naked deck, right? So right. Fausto De Martini, who <laughs> Is basically like the daddy of all the RDA stuff on, on Avatar sequels. I mean, like he he has. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to diminish the, the contributions of other people. By mm -hmm. by no means am I doing that. But Fausto has personally 3D modeled or touched almost everything. <laughs> like it's insane how much he did. So I will always be indebted to him and consider him a, a great friend also. But anyway, so he did the 3D massing model stuff on the Sea Dragon that ended up getting much more traction, and he developed that into into uh, you know beautiful quite detailed first version of, of the model with all kinds of stuff going on inside of it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we wanted to put something cool out front and, you know, I'm like a, you know, as Dylan and I have, have said, he, he, Dylan pointed out, I was like, Dylan, when we were looking at the art book, you know, prep stuff. And I'm like, Dylan, I didn't, I just didn't do that many paintings. Like, how do you do it? Like, how do you fit in the time to do all these paintings? 
He says, you and I procrastinate differently. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that's a good way of thinking. About <laughs> I'm a reference junkie. I will look at, you know, at pictures of weird aircraft or boats or details of, of hydraulically actuated ramps on, you know, on cargo ships. It's like, I get off on that stuff. It's not even right, the noises that I make sometimes when right. I'm looking at these, these photos. And so, of course, you know, we'd figure out, like, the coolest type of crane that's used with big military cargo ships to pull stuff on and off and it's just like automatically leveling double swivel arm thing and it, it there's just so much cool stuff in the real world that that half the time at least you don't need to make something up you can actually just go pull something from reality that nobody knows about because it's obscure uh and uh, and make your own you know sci-fi it up make your own version of it so fausto mm -hmm. did a beautiful crane uh bright red of course uh for the front of the ship and and, and you know we came up with other ideas for what what kind of dressing would be out there and you're just thinking at this point, schematically, like, well, what would be out there? Well, they have to refuel the friggin' boats, right? Okay, well, we're going to have some plumbing coming up, you know, and then, and then, well, what if, what if somebody crabs you, like, steps on the plumbing? Okay, we're going to put a giant red protective bar around the plumbing area where you can still get at it and plug in your huge clothes couplers, but it's protected. Okay, cool. And it just gives some graphic flow and all this sort of stuff. Later on, every, it's amazing. And like, like you're pointing out, every one of these things becomes, uh, critical to the story. Like, you know, like literally Spider is holding on to that red bar and holding on to Kiri when Neytiri dives after Took into that hatch uh, on the front of the ship when it's starting to go under and Took just disappears into the, into the blackness, right? Right. Um, you know, and, and anyway, it, it, Jake uses the crane to get from the, uh, the what we call the U-bridge uh, up top uh, down to the foredeck to keep fighting guys with Neytiri during the whole parents from hell sequence, which is what we call that. Um, <laughs> he uses it as a, as a ramp, basically. He comes hopping down. I think he might, he might even shoot somebody from up there before he fully jumps down. Right. So, and, 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 you know, the crane can be posed to different, different, you know, angles, right? So the crane plays differently in different scenes. The crane, you know, serves that function when, when Piacon attacks the ship and whacks uh, a crab suit that's on the crane, right? The crane then freewheels around smashes another crab suit with this thing and then lobs it like a cannonball into the into the well deck right where it rolls over some people so right. it's like just it's it's an amazing process of, of you know anyway I, I'm, I'm rambling now but but basically you know jim was great at finding the opportunities using the opportunities that you gave him in the designs you know eventually you you started to do very bespoke things around story like once it was it was really well defined and it's not quite good enough. Like you needed an extra piece of dressing to make an area interesting or whatever it might be. You might cheat that in or change mm -hmm. something. Um, but a lot of it was just designing it like how would it really be? And of course, our version of how it would really be, because we're hopefully good sci-fi designers who really privilege reality and we love looking at research, our base level of it looks pretty cool. You know what I mean? Like it's it's gonna sure. it's we're, we're providing opportunities and graphic breakup and all the things that we should be doing. Um, but then Jim would take that and, and, and run with it and scout it, right? One of the things I should touch on is just our, our process of, of uh, layout and scouting sets. Um, so with a lot of stuff, this is particularly true with Dylan's sets, which, which you know, are, are very often in nature and, and are inherently unbounded, right? So it's not like a, you know, a, a laboratory where there's walls and you kind of know where the thing begins and ends. Dylan's sets all end arbitrarily at some distance from where the, the shit's happening, right? right. And so he, he always has to kind of overbuild his layouts because Jim loves to wander around and treat it like a location scout and find what he thinks is the cool angle, you know, and Dylan will always, you know, give like several great designed angles 
inevitably Jim will, you know, sometimes he goes for that stuff, but Jim has a nose for find, like knowing what you want him to do and just wandering off into the, into the woods to find his own angle. And then, and of course you then have to adapt in, in real time, you know, cause it's on stage and he's, he's wandering around. Um, and, and he'll discover the part of the set that isn't dressed properly. It's like, well, yeah, it's not dressed properly. You, you, you wandered behind the flat, Jim. But uh, anyway, so, so even on the hard surface side that I do um, and that my team handles, uh, you know, we, we build things as much as possible in their entirety, right? So, you know, we have a real-time version of the whole Bridgehead City, uh, the new human base. It doesn't run well. It's a heavy model, and there's a lot of unload groups that you have to you have to hide, you know, to, to make make it perform it at different frame rates that we need for different purposes. Um, but uh, but the whole we design, you know, kind of the whole thing on a certain level, right? And uh, and so you know, with the Sea Dragon, um, you know, we we had a model that we could stand up that had everything turned on more or less, you know, and and so Jim could then go ahead and scout that and find areas that were interesting, particularly when it came to, uh, you know fight choreography, right? I mean, just think of the amount of fighting that goes on there under strange conditions, right? Korich and, and Jake have their fight that continues all the way through the, the uh, capsizing and, 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 you know, the rollover of the ship. Um, it changes angles, etc. So um, all those things needed to be um, basically presented to Jim and, and, and allow him in certain cases to play around with it with Garrett, the stunt coordinator, um, who is also our second unit director, um, and, and, and his team, just play with it, you know, like make cool stunt stuff with Jim, you know, provide, we provided them like a, like a set to play with. And, um, honestly, there was almost never a case and this sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm, I'm really just grateful. There was, there were very few cases where we had to fundamentally change a set because of some action thing that Jim, Jim or the stunt guys, whatever they came up with for the most part, they were able to just, you know, work with what was there, you know, and, and, and make, make it better. You know, sometimes we had to, create a pocket so that some little piece of dressing could fall out and bang into Jake as the ship is rolling, you know, sort of like we did invent little spaces and stuff. But for the most part, it was, they, they used the whole, the whole animal and the whole Buffalo, so to speak. They saw <laughs> what was there and they, and they, they used it. Um, so anywho, that, that was pretty say? amazing. I mean, really incredible. I think a lot of people, I'll just, I'll just say that the, the sea dragon, I mean, I, I just want to give credit to the department, you know, I mean, yeah. the, the, you know, there, there was almost not anyone in the, in the, on the live action, uh, sort of hard surface side of things that didn't touch the sea dragon in some way or another. Right. I mean, right. Fausta was kind of like the, the first master architect, uh, Forrest Fisher ended up being, being the, the final architect for, for kind of handing things off to visual effects. Um, he was one of our set designers and, uh, and he, he I mean, if anybody lost the most hair, it might've been him just cause he was trying to use basically, I think Rhino. Um, to bring in like all these insanely dense poly models from different people or, or other NURBS models or whatever. And he was the guy that had to like be able to turn all of it on at once in his computer, which was just melting. You know? Right. Uh, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm sure it was a tough model to deal with at, at uh, Weta as well. But, but, you know, using art department resources is very different from the kind of the systems that are already in place to, to deal with super heavy models in, at a visual effects house. So that was not easy. Um, but, so many different designers, concept, concept designers, illustrators, set designers, all took cracks at, uh, and, and both in LA and New Zealand, uh, cracks at elements of the Sea Dragon. So, you know, the fact that it looks, um, I, I, I enjoy designs when a lot of people get to, to work on it, um, because I think there's a richness to it. There's a sort of a, an unexpected, maybe things don't, the flavors don't quite congeal perfectly, mm -hmm. you know, that, that gives it some, some spice or some interest. Um, that fools the eye into thinking it's a real place because real places don't don't have everything matching. You know, paint colors don't match perfectly, and design sensibilities don't match. So 
it was such a big task that we had to basically, you know, farm out pieces of it to different people and you get that, that nice reality to it. So anyway, I, anyone who might be in the departments listening, thank you so much uh, for, for losing the hair to get the sea dragon out the door. <laughs> Absolutely. And I appreciate the fact that you wanted to make that point because a lot of, some people don't do that. Uh, so I really appreciate that. The other th- that you mentioned it earlier and I was actually going to lead up to it. I was wondering about that handoff, right? Because, uh, two two visual yeah. effects and how it works because uh, you know like I mentioned in the past when you in, on one we did together the first time I ever I ever saw that it was when we worked on Tron where we actually got yep. to hand stuff to each other yeah and that wasn't just a piece of paper and just says make it look like this right right so right. <laughs> so how was that how was that handoff how was that interaction with taking the design and just follow through with actual data and bits and bytes at some point. Um, it worked really well. Um, Michael Smale is the, um, gosh, I don't want to get his title wrong. I want to say he's the head of the art department at Weta. Uh, okay. At Weta FX. I'm not sure that that's the exact right title, but anyway, he was basically our, our go-to person. He, he was our, our major point of contact for anything design and asset related. So, um, you know, Michael has a process that he does, I think, for every show um, or that Weta does. I don't know if he invented it or, 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 or whatnot, but he's certainly a great practitioner of it. Um, that they make um, ARPs or art ref packs, right? Which, which I think start life as basically PDF layouts and then they get burned into video files um, just because visual effects houses are so video centric, right? That, that you can, yeah, it's, it's a movie that lives somewhere in their, in their crazy apparatus of, of, of databases and whatnot. Um, and, and it attempts to basically encapsulate every piece of information, visual information or reference that would be relevant to an artist who's sitting down to work on a thing. Right, okay. whether that thing is a tiny detail of a, on some you know piece of a weapon or or it's a basket or it's whatever it is, you know what what are the things that that without the chance to meet with this person personally, um, you know what are the things that we at LEI and the art department want to convey and that that Michael has has encapsulated beautifully into this very concise document and added in many cases a lot of his own reference, right? Um, so. You know where it's not particularly clear. We may have a 3D rendering that we've done in the art department that looks it looks terrific, right? Um, but Michael will then go in and find like real world things that have like almost exactly that type of a you know a paint finish or a or a metal coupler or like whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, and he will then kind of make callouts um, from the real world to those things. And and that's again like a great a great way to um, you know. There's only so much uh, diversity of shapes and whatever that you can get from like hand modeling things because you just run out of time and steam and whatever it is, you know, by pulling reference from the real world and specifically saying like, no, no, this thing should look, this part of the model should look exactly like this. You're pulling in these textures from reality that are, that, that won't match, you know, a little bit and, and it's got that richness to it. Um, so, so essentially for, yeah, for, so there's like a sea dragon, you know, fuselage, uh, Ref ARP, you know, that exists out there where we broke down the, you know, this, this part of the, this pattern, which he marked out in like bright purple as a false colored kind of diagram. This, this is a little more like an F-22 fuselage. This one over here is a little more like this reference of a, you know, some spun carbon fiber thing that we found, you know, uh, something being manufactured aircraft wise. And, and that's a great reference for that um, is very nitty gritty. Right. Um, at that point, um, sometimes we will see. Uh, like turntables explicitly, right? There, there were ones where we went so far uh, over the line in terms of, of like demonstrating our intention or our seriousness about the look dev of something on the art department side that we'd do these like, frankly, overkill, but awesome <laughs> render illustrations of like 
the Kestrel or the Sea Wasp or just any number of these things that were going to be heavily digitally realized, um, we put a lot of time into into like really tight, really final, like full on with like roughness mapped and then anisotropy maps and like all kinds of shit to make it look mm-hmm. like this is how we want it to look. In those cases, um, we would be involved at a sort of turntable review level. Um, we'd see stills and turntables and stuff, um, you know, and, and with other assets, not, not all, all the time, you know. And then the Sea Dragon, of course, is such a, it's 400 feet long and covered in detail and characters crawl on ever, all kinds of specialized little parts of it. So, sure. they, you know, they would do a, here's our interpretation of this, you know, of your model in this area where Jake needs to climb up this thing, right? And our model in that area is like, it's like basically a giant, you know, sub surface with a cool texture map on it. It's like, and they've got to then invent like, okay, this is the real version of that with some dimensionality and fasteners and every other thing that they need mm-hmm. to add to it. What do you think? And we go back and forth on those model presentations and, uh, and we get it there. Um, I think we're going to hopefully do a little more asset level review um, like kind of final review, like like turntables or whatever, or or even early shot level reviews going forward, just to prevent a couple surprises that happened. Um, but uh, you know, and then we get to see stuff basically in in early some early shots for certain sequences. Essentially, you know, they did a great job of giving us the opportunity to see hero design elements in some kind of sequence or some kind of shot um, earlier on when they had more time on their hands. You know, that they that they could involve us, and then later on when they were just you know, steam was coming out of their ears as they were finishing the film. They just we, we couldn't see everything in context sure. like that. Sure, um, sure, sure. But uh, but I would say overall the process was was great. And having somebody like Michael who comes from an architecture background like you, mm-hmm. um, you know, who 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 knows enough to know where to look for the crazy good reference, you know, and and uh, uh, he was invaluable. And uh, anyway, so hats off to him and and also just just all all of the all the modelers and texture artists and everybody at, at Weta who, who took all that stuff seriously and, and all that finesse is there. Um, there were certain cases where I would see things in a shot context where I was like, that's not good enough, you know, like, and, and um, didn't happen very often, but sometimes it would happen. Like, again, it's like, here's a new area of the sea dragon. And like, suddenly we're looking right at it and it's a Manuka render. It's like a real mm-hmm. render. Like, Oh mm-hmm. shit. Like, Oh, it could look a little better than that. Right. You know, and I'll, I'll send a paint over. I'll just say, refer to this piece of this live action set that we did for the finishing of this and that cool set deck piece and da da da. And um, those little, you know, when time allowed, which it did for a very long time, those little uh, notes were very well received and, and I think made a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For sure. I mean, it's interesting you say that and you mentioned architecture a few times because there is actually a parallel between how architecture gets designed and what you guys did. Cause I mean, there are the same phases, right? Sort of there's the conceptual design phase and there's the mm-hmm. design development phase. And then there's a construction document phase, right? And everything you described sounds very similar to the different, those different phases that you would do for, for yeah, creating yeah. that. So it was really cool, but obviously yeah. Weta wasn't the only place you guys were working with. You were also working with ILM. And yep. so how was the collaboration between, you know, all three of you trying to, I'm sure there must've been a lot of exchanging of data between going all of that. Right. There was, I mean, I think most of the exchanging of data between them was somewhat opaque to us. We didn't, okay. you know, we didn't know exactly, exactly what was going on, but we, you know, you could tell that, that, uh, Weta, you know, that they, they kind of did a last minute scramble to try to get a bunch of bridgehead stuff ready to hand on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. a heroic amount of work in a short period of time to kick that over. Um, there were things that then needed to be finessed at ILM, um, but at least they had a terrific baseline, um, you know, to work with. Uh, you know, in terms of the process, I mean, I think they did a good job of communicating with one another. I felt supported in that way. You know, it wasn't like you can imagine sure. these two top companies kind of being adversarial or some shit, but it didn't it didn't seem like that at all. 
I don't think they they do that anymore. There, there are so many movies now that have so many shops, they have to be collaborative or you're not right. actually. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Well, good. Well, anyway, that is what we saw. Um, and, um, you know, and then working with uh, with ILM, David Vickery over there in London, um, it was great. I mean, honestly, the, the, the luxury that those guys, guys had is that they, they weren't, um, I don't want to say burned out, because I, I know that, like, everyone everyone that worked on Avatar uh, 2 at WADA is, is raring to be involved in in, in any level with the, with the next movies. Um, Joe Letary told me that to my, to my face, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, are people okay? Are they okay? He's like, he's like, no, no, they're going. They're like, everyone wants to get back to, <laughs> to Avatar. It's like, great. That sounds <laughs> awesome. But there's a certain level of just fatigue, right. That kicks in on a, on a team and a, in a process. Um, and so it was, it was a little bit of a breath of fresh air, uh, working with Island just cause they were fresher to the project, you know, like bushy tailed. Sure. Um, not that, not that what it wasn't, you know, most of the time, but, but it's, it, you, you can't maintain that level of, uh, spunk, you know, that we got with the fresh, fresh team. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and just, you know, to see that their methods were different, um, you know, w- was cool. And we were very involved in, in, because it was such a contained scope, you know, we were sort of involved uh, in, explicitly at a shot level, shot review level, like from beginning to end with that stuff, which was, which was cool, you know. Um, we very often were involved at that level with what, but, but there's just, just too much scope, right? I mean, there were so many things that we didn't, we didn't have time to look at and they didn't have time to show us. So, um, so that was, that was cool. And, um, but, but, you know, I mean, the, 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 what guys are our main partners, you know, and that's sure. true going forward and, and, uh, spent a lot of time in New Zealand, literally socializing with these people and stuff. So there's a lot of, a lot of love and teamwork there. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. I'm sure it's, you know, like you said, it's once in a lifetime opportunity to work on this film and I'm I'm so glad that everyone was able to enjoy it. Uh I do I do uh <laughs> not that I want to distract us from more avatar talk, but we've been talking for a while and there's and there's a subject yeah. that I want to talk about with you. Yeah, yeah. And let I'm people know that you and I actually uh had got uh <laughs> got up for uh, we had lunch together not long ago yeah. uh and we were talking about stuff and obviously it was right as a lot of this uh ai stuff has started to come aboard and mm-hmm. it's just growing leaps and bounds every every day every day <laughs> and it's just kind of a very interesting so you know obviously as someone who is very tuned towards uh the world of design and worked on one of the most you know most designed movie <laughs> in the last decade. Mm-hmm. What are some of your thoughts on how uh, these tools are going to affect the industry? I know that the jury's still out and you're still trying to figure out what's going on as is everyone else. Yeah. But what are some of your initial thoughts on this from your perspective? Um, I mean, I, I basically look at it with, with a level of agnosticism and a level of uh, fear or uh, what's the word? I don't know skepticism. Skepticism. Right? So it's it's and then and then there's the bit of like excitement that like you can't not be excited by you know either either just to see the kind of crazy imagery that this thing can make or to see how it could accelerate your own process. Um, you know, there's definitely there's definitely upsides. I mean, I, I guess I look at it you know as as somebody who you know has read a bunch of sci-fi books and and takes Terminator seriously, right? <laughs> <laughs> I take Terminator at face value as a, an actual cautionary tale and not just a, a cool movie. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I, so there's the near, there's the, the near game and the end game, right. Or, okay. or the longer, you know, and it's impossible to predict exactly where these things are going. But I do think that in, we're in a realm of technology now to where the, the improvement cycle is so fast, as you say, right. 
Um, and, and I think that there's an inherent aspect of the, the human users helping to train and improve the product as they use it, right? Because the people, you know, these programmers that are, that are in, in my mind, on some level, blithely ruining art without realizing they're doing it, right? Art clever people, and they're good at what they do. And, um, you know, they're trying to make this thing better and, and, and have superhuman, amazing capabilities. And, and that involves constantly, constant improvement, constantly expanding the data set and, and whatever it's working with. Um, I guess, look, it, it, it's, it's a fraught topic. It's something that we, you know, we, you and I talked about that I talk about with other fellow artists, uh, you know, f fairly often. I find it fascinating and also upsetting, um, you know, and I, and I just, I guess the near term, far term sort of thing. In the near term, I've literally used it, um, you know, to do a little bit of, of art for a personal thing um, and not to generate something that I use straight up, but to make parts, right? Essentially, sort of like a new form of, of kind of uh, photo bashing, but you're bashing off of, of, of AI generated stuff. Um, I personally think that that's a more, that's a more ethical, ethically acceptable uh, to whatever extent that is even a relevant, you know, concept when, when I think as, as you pointed out, when we met, it's like, well, you've been stealing people's photographs for years. And it's hundred percent true. hundred <laughs> percent true. Um, we were just you know, talking about it <laughs> just now. <laughs> so, so yeah, so exactly. Other, other than painting, you know, from scratch or whatever, without looking at, uh, you know, anybody's stuff for reference, you know, mm -hmm. th th there's always a degree, a degree of thievery involved in, in a lot of these methods. I mean, even the 3d kit bashing, right? Some, somebody sure. modeled those, you know, whatever the pipe valves that I stole off GrabCat and used for the corner of something, you know, and then so um, there's, there's a degree of that. But uh, the I guess I worry about the long term, right? I worry about what is it like for kids who, you know, who are going to grow up in a future where and this is and this is across the board. This is, this, you know, art is obviously the thing that I'm worried about most because it's right in my face. It affects me personally or people that I know. Um, you know, it's it's going to affect everybody. Right. I mean, G the GPT stuff is evolving so quickly, e even if we put aside like the whole singularity of the thing, you know, e whether it's conscious or not, it actually doesn't matter whether it attains agency is really the, the, the right question. Right. Um, that any of these systems become self-defending and self-replicating and, and they have some sense of agency. Um, you know, there's those sorts of like, you know, digital gray goose scenarios that, that are, are really worth worrying about. Right. But even if we manage to keep the, the shackles on the genie. Right. And we, we want to just use it for our purposes and, and you know, and, and all the AI disaster scenarios don't play out the way that Jim Cameron and other people have thought that they would. We still, you know, kids who aren't even born yet are going to come into a world where from the from the moment they see images, um, you know, in a world where, where we, we don't stop to differentiate human creation versus AI creation images where they don't they don't really know whether a machine made it or a person made it. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have the, uh, I don't know, the, the traditional kind of art pipeline that one would think of learning to draw with crayons and then discovering that you like art and learning to draw with a pencil and then figuring out paints and all this sort of stuff, you know, all those traditional things. Um, you know, you look at kids these days making, you know, music with GarageBand on their phone or whatever it is, it's, it's happened in other media, it's happened in, in other times. Um, and it's not as if music went away, it didn't. Um, but I guess is it just is it there's a cheapening of the traditional ways that happens with with these things and and I think that in the, the the real end game of the AI even without the disaster scenario is it's a cheapening of what it is to be a person and I, and, and I, that sounds really grandiose um, but like if the, if the human imagination turns out to be inferior 
that's just shitty to find but, out. But this is, is, I'm sorry, Ben, but this has been said for everything all the time. They used sure. to say the same thing about photography. L- architecture right. itself, they said if it involves steel, it is not architecture. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> right? That's- so uh, Eiffel was, the Eiffel Tower was not considered a piece of architecture. Right, because, right, right. Right? And so so there is differently, like, the, the so when when there is a notion of what traditional medium needs to be, it's, it's, it's there, right? I just... I don't know. I for I don't know. I don't. I don't. My jury's still out personally on this, but I mm-hmm. I am seeing a massive interest in art from people that would never have been interested in it before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and before that, I saw nothing but people trying to people who were doing quote unquote art were just remaking Iron Man suits and you right. know, right. For sure. girls in uh, you know uh, metal bikinis with swords. Anime. Right, that was all oh, they yeah, were yeah. doing. So, oh, and so oh. now suddenly people are, there's an imagine, imagination has gotten better, I think. <laughs> so the fact nice. that it has rattled the cage of art, I, you know, I, that's the part of it that I do respect. And I right. think it, it's like, yep. a, it's like a wake up call to, to, you know, people who just haven't challenged themselves to be extra creative or to, or to push outside of the norms or whatever it might be. Um, you know, it's like e- even the early AI stuff that was just, it, you know, was bizarre looking, it still was thought provoking on that level that it's yeah. like, you know what, this is something that a person probably should have come up with, but didn't, you know? And so the, the, the machine is shaming us a little bit to, to try right. harder and go farther uh, and all that. And, and so I look, I, I see that part of it too. Um, but I also think that look, and again, you could be right, but I feel like the, um, you know, the whole, the new tool argument, right. Which, which is often applied to any of these new elements, right. Is, is that it's just, it's, it's the same, the same artistic process or it's the same creative goal. It's just a new tool. Don't be threatened by the new tool. Right. Right. Um, I do think that AI goes beyond that. I think it's in its own category. Um, and even if it's not there now, it has the capability to get there fast, you know, and, and, and the the level of evolution that it's going through. Um, I just, I just think that we're, we're going to get to a point where, you know, I mean, whatever we, we've, we've all, I think I told you recommended that you read life 3.0 and I think you did read it. Right. Or, yeah. or um, you know, the breakout scenario there is, is, you know, of course that, that the AI figures out how to create media uh, and, and it's, it's basically a way that for, to, to, for it to generate cash that it can buy more digital resources online and spread itself out into the internet and da da da. Um, you know, the fact that since I read that, it went from seeming really implausible that an AI could could write a script and create an animation and like put it online and make money from it, da da da, to like really plausible within just a few years, right? right. It's really plausible. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, and again, we're not there yet. It's like, you know, everyone will say, oh yeah, they made an AI cartoon, but it sucked. It's like, well, yeah, you know, wait six months. Right. You know, every naysaying, every naysay you can put against AI, it changes within a few months. You know, you suddenly like, oh, it can do that now. So yeah. um, I just, I look, I, like I said, I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti AI categorically. Um, I reserve the right to play around with it myself. Um, I think it's interesting, but the power of it is spooky. And the, the long term, the long term of it is, is nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows. I agree. And I think you're, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily uh, cheering for its evolution in any way or its propagation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do find, I do find anything that disrupts the norms to sometimes be not always a bad thing. Uh, 
I um, will say that there's a lot of people who are are upset about it, and specifically people who are artists and concept artists who mm-hmm. are looking at legislation to try to uh, to 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 uh, inspect this. I really respect the fact that they're doing that because I think that's something that is uh, that is uh, needed for proper discussion. I don't think people know what the hell they're talking about when they do legislation. Like for example, the woman who said she can't get her her uh, comic book. Uh, uh, copyrighted because it was right. done by AI. That doesn't make any sense. If you really look at the legislation, that's like they're using the argument of the monkey that took its picture, right? As that can't be copyrighted. Okay. That doesn't a machine ma- I, I don't know because a machine made that picture. They can't copyright it. But you use Photoshop all the time. It's the same argument. So what's the deal? So I don't think the courts have the language for it yet. Right. Right. Which is my concern. I don't think is like, has the language right now. Yeah. It's right. A precedent breaking thing. Right. I, I agree. But I do believe that there needs to be like, hey, there's some, you know, there needs to be some ethical guardrails here that needs to be observed. And, and that's very interesting. So yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I really would like to know, you know, what they're doing to help that process and how they're going to figure it out. Uh, but, uh, and really f- try to sort of get to the ground of it. So I yeah. really, I actually, if, Anyone listening to this knows Carla Ortiz. I do know Carla. I've tried to email her several times, but if anyone is actually speaking to her, say she should come on this podcast, I really want to have that conversation with her. Nonetheless, <laughs> what do you think? Uh, how do you think the, the 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 world of concept art is going to be affected by this? Be it either through legislation or through you know the future of it. Are they? What what do you think is going to happen? I, I look. I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I hear on the one hand that that uh, you know studios are spooked at the idea that if, if people use AI, um, you know, in a piece of concept art or whatever it is, that they're going to get screwed because they can't copyright it. You know, they can't claim to own it, and someone else can steal their you know what what they would like to be a proprietary branded sort of thing. And turns out, oops, you didn't really do it the right way, and so you know it's not your thing. Um, right. You know that the that they're spooked by that. I think is is. I think it's a good thing, you know. I think th- I think that the idea that we should just plunge, you know, wholehearted into this, and that that anyone who works on a movie, uh, you know, including I know I'm not going to say specific roles outside of the art department, but that, that sure. anyone, you know, can just like like oh yeah, I've got I made some art too, and I made some art too. It, it, you know, at a certain point, um, it, it's an absurdity, right? And and, and it, it it will lead to a sort of watered down approach to design where um you know it, it ends up being i don't know some sort of evolutionary survival of the fittest thing that you just just throw a bunch of ideas out there and like for whatever political dynamics and decisions of the moment you know lead somebody to like one thing or the other well okay flow with that and we're going to flow with this and it, it it speeds things up to a level where um or, or diffuses them also to a level where I'm, I'm just not sure that's helpful to to the process you know you need you need to do good work, you need like to deep dive. You need to, you need to like embed your brain into something. And, and uh, in any case, um, you know, it's inevitable that it's going to be used. I know that it's in some art departments I'm hearing it's being used uh, as a form of research. Right. So so someone who's not an illustrator is making imagery, um, you know, as research. And, I, you know, like it, it kind of like that's the best version of it, you know, but it's it, it's. Because you know, at least you're you're, char- you're characterizing it the right way or categorizing it the right way. You're not trying to replace making the image. You're just getting ideas. Um, and to some extent, like, is it better to rip off a real person out there on the internet whose thing you liked, or is it better to rip off something that no one's seen before? Okay, and on that level, ethically, maybe it's in a certain way better to just rip off this 
or discover things that are actually new, right? Um, at the same time, though, you know, I know from having screwed around with AI imagery a little bit, uh, you know, like the perfect version of it is, is like, oh, wow, I'm inspired by that. I'm going to start from scratch and not copy paste any pieces out of that image. But yeah, and you want to, you want to use the image, right? It's right there. So, so, so the imagery will end up getting used in people's artwork, um, you know, and, 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 and hidden, you know, painted over just enough that like, hopefully the, the lawyers aren't going to get involved and all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't know, I guess that's fine. Um, I just, I just worry that I, I can even see in my own process, having played with it just a little bit, there's a, there's a laziness that creeps into your head. It's like, I could sit here and daydream and look at my art books and do all the things that I would do, um, you know, and think of something, or I can just like, let's see what the AI has to say about this and just da -da 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 -da, and boom, and like, well, that fuck, <laughs> usually <laughs> pressingly good, you know, or at least interesting or something maybe you wouldn't have thought of. Right. right. Um, and so. I guess in, in your view of, of it being a, a sort of an improvement in the art process, right? I guess in that sense, it's an accelerant for more creative ideas. I guess on that level, it's good, but it, but it, it for people who haven't had the luxury to come up without it, um, it it'll just be, you know, your brain won't be able to go into the full deep mode of doing it all by yourself. You know what I mean? I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm also like, I'm a parent of a teenager and I, you know, I see all the dynamics of modern media digital life and how it affects people's minds. I hear it. I will, I will say this, that the best AI art I have seen is done by people who are really good artists. Right. For sure. For sure. Right. Because so it doesn't necessarily replace you because the only reason it looks so good is because you are you <laughs> and you had all that training and you have the eye to understand how to do things. Right. It's and true. you as a production designer, you've spent a lot of time looking at other people's images and telling them what to do. <laughs> No, for sure. For sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, and part of it, yeah, it feels like you've got this magical genie of art that can just do work for you. Right. It's like, well, I kind of know what I want. I'm going to yeah. beat this thing into giving me what I want, you know, and it'll take 20 minutes instead of two days. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a certain like, you know, you, you can't not be seduced by that on some level. I just, I just, I don't know. I, I think I'm just a curmudgeonly old person on some level also, sure. you know, I, I just think that the, the profusion of more and more of something, right? If, if sure. we if we make cool looking art be easy to attain or achieve by almost anybody, right? And you're absolutely right. The very best and most interesting stuff is done by people who come from an art background and they know they know what they're looking for, right? They know they know how to how to find something that's really cool. Um, but once this imagery is out there in such giant, uh, you know, just just quantities made by anybody, right? Does it just cheapen image making? Does it just cheapen what an image is? You know, I mean, in the same way that like the, the, the you know, whatever, quintillions of iPhone photos that are sitting out on people's phones and servers and whatever, most of which will never even get looked at. You know, does that cheapen photography? I mean, for me personally, like it does a little bit. I mean, maybe, maybe as I said, mental frailty, but, but I don't really, I feel like it's less of a thing to go see a photog photography exhibit now because photography is just so brutally ubiquitous, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know. It's not fair, but, but I just worry. It's just too much, you know? And, and, and people will just, will, will probably start to tune it out and look back to the organic, you know, side of things, I, I think. Well, um, that happened in, you know, with the exception of Avatar, there was a big backlash in terms of CG for that specific reason, right? Right, I think. right. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. But, but, uh, but yeah, I, th I think that there's something that, you know, for example, I'd, like I said, I don't want to dismiss this, but like there's something that people that are looking at in terms of the efficacy of 
how the models were trained was needs to be considered Correct. and understood. Correct. Use cases of it also need to be understood. I think that the idea of copyright doing this thing, I also think is very fascinating. I think people need to be smarter about how they look at it as well in terms of the copyright, because I think there's a, a way that people should be able to explore new methodologies without the fear of losing copyright because you use something different than someone not normally does, right? So right, I think right. those are some interesting things. All right, I don't want to go too long because I do want to have give you the opportunity to talk about any other projects that are going on or things that you're going on in your life that you want to share with people. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, I, I think it's just all avatar all day in terms of, of, uh, what I'm mainly and on for the record. unforeseeable future, like for like forever, <laughs> it's going to go on right? Got a lot more movies to make. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, it's, we took a while to do these, obviously that was trying to gear up for the basic conceptual design for four films. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that was a huge chunk of chunk of work, but you know, the nitty gritty, let's just say the nitty gritty of work required to shoot out four and five, um, in, in terms of figuring out what we're what, what are we practically building where are we doing it what's the schedule in new zealand like all that stuff it's just right. it is a mind-blowing amount and, you know not to mention on, on the virtual side like okay let's do our our totally pornographic look dev designs of this thing and hand right. that over to visual facts and all that stuff um it's just a it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of work right? yeah it's gonna take time um but uh but yeah i'm a minute to win it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm so glad, you know, like we said last time when we talked is like, I can't talk about Avatar too much now, but maybe when the movie comes out, it's like, well, the movie's come out now. So now we can talk yeah, about some yeah, stuff. Yeah. And of course, there'll be much more with four and five and six or not six, three, four and five. But so yeah, we'll, yeah. we will, we will try to catch up with you at some point. Yeah, during absolutely. Those and there's, well. there's so much more detail that I could tell you about too. I mean, gosh, I, I, I sort of only scratched the surface, but I'm sure, um, you know, there's an art book out there. There's the visual dictionary out there. You know, a lot of our, our specifics and our geekery are all represented fairly well in those books that I would recommend to people. And awesome. uh, yeah, and the games coming out that are going to be cool too. So that's exciting. That's so cool. Well, Ben, congratulations again on your nomination. It was fantastic. Uh, sorry, you didn't win, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you coming back on, on the podcast and be able to share yeah. all your stories with us. Always good to talk. We'll do it again. 